Hello, and welcome to the Dark Ages podcast. Today's episode, A Balkan Bust-Up. Now, obviously, I need to open today with an apology. We delayed getting our flu shots this year, just because, you know, busy, 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 and you all paid the price for it. Well, I, I got the flu, so I paid the price for it, too. But you all didn't get the episode in the time frame that I had promised, and for that, I ask you to forgive me. Hopefully, my American listeners all enjoyed their Thanksgiving, and everyone else enjoyed their Thursday. This episode is a little bit longish, so there's no time for any more jibble-jabble just please accept my apologies, and let's get on with it. I am excited for this one. And now, ladies and gentlemen, you've heard him mentioned in passing. He's been darkly hinted at in poorly executed foreshadowing, and he shares a name with not one but two rulers already discussed in this podcast. Please put your hands together for the Pannonian Punisher, the Avenger of the Amal Dynasty, the Gothic Godfather himself, Theodoric the Great! But seriously, today's a big day. Today, we welcome to the stage one of the seminal figures of the post-Roman reality. Theodoric the Great, also known as Theodoric the Amal, who became king of the Pannonian Ostrogoths in 471 and then ruled in Italy from 493 to 526 and at the height of his power controlled the greatest territory in Western Europe. He never claimed the title, but through his diplomatic letters it is clear that he considered himself equal to the emperor in Constantinople and his influence was felt and his opinion sought all over the continent. His reign and life are so big and important, it's going to take well more than one episode to cover him, and we will be referring back to him for many episodes after that. Today, I'll deal with his early life, and the world he grew up in, and how he became king of the Ostrogoths, and the tortuous political roads that would eventually lead him to Italy and immortality. By necessity, this is going to be an episode constructed mainly out of digressions. There's a fair amount of setup needed to get Theodoric from his birthplace somewhere in Hungary onto the throne of Ravenna, and some of that setup will involve Byzantine politics, literally, and we've already gotten a taste of how that all goes. Nesting digressions, in other words, wheels within wheels. Hopefully it will all make sense in the end. To mark digressions and give a little organization to this thing, I have come up with this. Please welcome the Drums of Digression. Hopefully that is helpful and not annoying. To start with, I want to talk about sources. Theodoric's legacy is so important because he had what Odoacer did not, a flair for propaganda. Theodoric was a patron of historians and philosophers who would shape the perception of his reign. Most notable of these for our purposes is Cassiodorus who wrote a history of the Goths, which Jordanes would summarize for us later, as well as collecting many of Theodoric's diplomatic letters. But as you may have already guessed, Cassiodorus is not an unbiased observer, and in the case of his history, he had a very specific goal, which was then transmitted to us through Jordanes. I'm 
always worried that I'm not being clear about this, by the way. So, momentary digression within a digression will not do the drums right now. The historical work that I refer to constantly, The Origin and Deeds of the Goths, or the Getica for short, by Jordanes, is a brief summary of a much larger work by Cassiodorus, which was written a generation earlier. Jordanes, in his introduction to the Getica, notes that he only had a few days to work with the original, and was working from memory as he wrote. The original history by Cassiodorus is lost to us. It's obvious, from what's come to us through Jordanes, that Cassiodorus very much sought to establish an ancient and supremely noble lineage for his king and patron, and to present him as an equal to the Constantinian emperor and superior to all the other rulers of the West. The most thorough source for the early life of Theodoric is the unfortunately incomplete history written by a Greek in Constantinople named Malchus of Philadelphia. Of his 54-volume history, only two volumes have survived, and those because they were compiled in a textbook called the Constantinian Excerpts for use and education of emperors. For our purposes, though, the remaining volumes are, for the time they were written, amazing, quite thorough, and very chatty. Enough of that. Let's move on and talk about Goths and Huns some more. Yeah, I know. I have talked about Goths until I'm blue in the face, and from what you would get from this podcast, they certainly seem like a pretty peripatetic bunch. Come on, you can do better than that. A pretty peripatetic people. Better. But of course, for the vast majority of the time, I've been specifically talking about the Goths who followed Alaric and his dynasty, the Balts, out of the Balkans and into France and Spain via Italy. These Goths, the Visigoths, made up a tiny fraction of the people in Europe who spoke Gothic or thought of themselves as Gothic. There remained the Ostrogoths, who broke loose from the failing Hunnic Empire, who we've already heard about and we'll be talking about more today. There were Goths that had lived in Thrace since before the Huns' coming. There also were populations that we know of in Crimea and along the eastern shore of the Sea of Azov, and probably many others far beyond the Carpathians and Roman frontier, and still under Hunnic domination, who we will never know anything about. It's those first two groups, the Ostrogoths, and those that I will call the Thracian Goths, that concern us today. To take the Thracian Goths first, these were the descendants of the very first wave of Gothic refugees to arrive on Roman soil, a generation or so before the Huns. They had been settled by Emperor Valens along the right bank of the Danube during Athanaric's persecution of Christian converts. They lived in the standard arrangement, providing manpower to the Roman army in return for the right to stay and work the land and make a living. History, as the man said, is just one damn thing after another, and things were up and down for the Thracian Goths, but overall, their trajectory was up. So it came to be that after a hundred years, there remained a now deeply rooted Gothic population in Thrace, under the leadership of a man named Theodoric. And that's unfortunate, because he's not the Theodoric that I introduced at the beginning of this episode. Theodoric, as a name, just means ruler of the people, so it was a pretty common name in aristocratic circles back in the day. Fortunately for us, this Theodoric also had a nickname. He's Theodoric the Squinter which in Greek is Theodoric Strabo, so that's what I'm going to call him from here on out, Strabo. So, how deeply rooted were Strabo's Goths? Very. 
and they had had plenty of time to extend those roots and make connections in the Roman government, specifically in Constantinople. And now it's time for a new digression to bring you up to speed with Constantinopolitan politics. You are probably going to want some hip waders, and brace yourself, the water is cold. Deep breath. And begin. We don't talk about Zeno. No, wait, we do talk about Zeno. We need to talk about Zeno. You may have been asking yourself during the last episode, just what could have been going on that would keep Zeno from just taking Odoacer out in all that Italy mess? Well, here's where we find out. Zeno's predecessor was named Leo I, and if you have a very good memory, then you'll know that Leo had been maneuvered onto the throne by the East's master of soldiers, Aspar. Aspar occupied the same puppet master position that men like Stilicho and Aetius did in the West. He'd been there for 50 years, and where the Amanos Gri gig in the West was a bit of a revolving door, in the East it was just Aspar and his talent for not dying. His intention had been that Leo would be a biddable pawn. Leo, while no doubt grateful for the advancement, had no intention of being beholden to anyone, and set to work to ensure his independence. Part of Aspar's power was the close relationship he had with the Gothic elements of the army, who also comprised a significant chunk of Constantinople's city guard. Close enough to have a family connection, Aspar's wife was Theus Doric Strabo's aunt. Leo needed a loyal armed force of his own to counter Aspar's Goths. Conveniently, the threat of the Huns had led to increasing recruitment among the more marginal peoples of the empire, including some called the Isaurians. The Isaurians were an ethnic group that lived in the Taurus Mountains in modern Turkey. In spite of their homeland's long history of incorporation into the empire on the map, the Isaurians hadn't ever really been fully Romanized, and they maintained a tribal lifestyle that revolved around banditry and pastoralism. Leo saw in them a potential counterweight to the power of Aspar and his Goths, and he played the traditional game with the Isaurian tribes, offering subsidies and promotion for the leaders of various bands, and he built them into a cadre in imperial service that depended on him and had no loyalty or connection to Aspar. Some of Leo's Isaurians were led by a man named Terasicodissa, but as his status rose, he took the Greek name Zeno to be more acceptable to Constantinople society, and I am eternally grateful to him for that. There were other Asarian leaders with their own men and agendas, but Zeno rose to the top of the heap. He apparently had had a hand in the removal of Aspar's son, Artabur, from office by passing on some incriminating letters from the Persians. His son's fall weakened Aspar, and thus assured Zeno of the emperor's gratitude and Aspar's animosity. From the beginning, Zeno comes across as an energetic, cunning, capable man who is also utterly ruthless and completely self-interested. Which, to be fair, doesn't really set him apart from most of the characters I've introduced on this show. He showed a flair for the intrigues that Constantinople was famous for, as we'll see as we go on here. By 471, Zeno and another Asarian named Illus were generals. Zeno had been married to Leo's daughter, Ariadne, and had a son with her, and Leo felt ready to make his move. A poorly recorded conspiracy toppled Aspar and at least one of his sons, who were both murdered in the palace. Procopius puts it this way in his secret history, quote, The emperor Leo destroyed both Aspar and Artabur in the palace because he suspected they were plotting against his life. End quote. That is it. 
they never write about the parts you really want to know. The fall of Aspar couldn't happen without consequences, of course. The Thracian Goths, led by Strabo, went into rebellion at the loss of their powerful patron. In the intensely personalized political environment of late antiquity, the removal of any single powerful individual would result in some degree of systemic instability, and Aspar had been a particularly powerful individual. It was more than a matter of loyalty and honor, though it was that too. The Thracians' relationship had meant economic prosperity for their people, and prestige and power for their leaders, and that was now not just in danger, but under active threat from Leo and his Isaurians. So, they resorted to the traditional negotiating tactic of attacking Roman cities to remind Constantinople that they could not be ignored or discarded. It all makes perfect sense in the logic of the time. Equally logically, Leo sent Illus and Zeno out to meet Strabo and deal with him, both militarily and diplomatically. There was, though, a cat who was about to insert himself in among these pigeons, and for that we need another digression. The largest band of Ostrogoths, who were liberated from Hunnic domination at the Battle of Nadal, were led by three brothers, Valamir, Theodomir, and Vidimir, with Valamir, the eldest, preeminent. Cassiodorus, via Jordanes, would have us believe that these three were scions of the ancient Amal dynasty, which had ruled the Grithungi ever since they'd migrated down from the Baltic Sea in an unbroken succession. I, still wet behind my podcast ears, repeated that to you back in episode one. That story is Horsepucky, ladies and gentlemen. Warm, herbaceous Horsepucky. It's part of that program I mentioned earlier to retroactively concoct a respectable lineage for Theodoric. First off, dynasties like that among a warrior culture like I've described ad nauseum are incredibly difficult to maintain for more than a few generations under normal circumstances. And the idea that the Huns, and especially Attila, would have allowed an ancient and powerful dynasty to remain ancient and powerful is profoundly naive. The preeminence of Valamir, Theodomir, and Vidimir was achieved the same way it was in every other Germanic warrior tribe, through marriage, maneuver, coercion, and occasionally murder. However they'd gotten there. In the 450s, the Amal brothers managed to grab a chunk of Roman Pannonia and pushed for a relationship with, and especially subsidies from, Constantinople. A treaty was eventually hammered out, grudgingly, on the Romans' part, which included continued occupancy of Pannonia and a subsidy of 300 pounds of Roman gold per year. In return, the usual military service would be forthcoming, as well as the delivery of Theodomir's eldest son to Constantinople as a hostage. So it came to pass in 463, the eight-year-old Theodoric of the Amal, along with appropriate servants and retainers, arrived in the great capital. The taking of young noble hostages to reinforce treaties was accepted practice across the ancient world, and had been for a very, very long time. The implication being, of course, you keep up your end of the deal, and your young son will stay just as handsome as he is now. You don't? Well, whatever happens to him really is on you, isn't it? In spite of the threat, many barbarian leaders were perfectly happy to send their children as hostages to the Romans, because they knew that they would make connections that could prove extremely helpful in their later leadership roles. The Romans also saw a secondary benefit in the idea that barbarian leaders who had received a Roman education were likely to be more sympathetic to Roman interests, at least in theory. 
Theodoric would spend ten years in residence at the Imperial City. We have no detailed information about the time he spent there, but he certainly received the standard Roman education, which certainly informed his later work. Whether it had made him more sympathetic to Roman interests... All depends on how you look at things. While he was away, his people balanced in a precarious position. This episode brought to you by the letter P. Unlike their Thracian cousins, the Ostrogoths, which is what I'm going to call them from here on out, as opposed to the Thracian Goths, had no strong relationships with the Roman power structure, no deep connection to the land they occupied or the people on it, and a pile of neighbors who varied in their military strength but were all equally hostile to the Ostrogoths. Valamir kept things together, but it wasn't easy, and the inevitable tensions between the three brothers made things even more difficult. Things became even more unstable with the death of Valamir. The eldest of the Amal brothers had had no children of his own, so Theodomir assumed the mantle of leadership. And at about the same time, Theodoric returned from his sojourn in Constantinople. Whether he had been sent for by his father, or the terms of the treaty just always stipulated he would be returned after ten years, it was certainly fortuitous that he was on hand to bolster his father's position, as well as place himself in the line of succession. He had come with a strong education, youthful energy, and a head full of ideas. He also came with a need to prove himself as a fighting man worthy of leading other fighting men, and earn his place in the succession. So immediately upon his return to Pannonia, Theodoric organized a plundering expedition, and aimed them at the Sarmatians, who were occupying land further down the Danube. That choice was wise both tactically and strategically. Tactically, because the Sarmatians had been whittled down by the last century until they'd become at this point everyone's favorite whipping boy. Strategically, because in the course of the campaign, Theodoric took Sigmundunum, modern Belgrade, from the Sarmatians. It was an old and important Roman city that I have mentioned several times before. It was one of the keys to the Middle Danube, and Theodoric was not giving it back to the Romans. The young man had seized the opportunity to make a splash with both hands. Does that count as a mixed metaphor? Maybe it does. Theodoric would have been right in the thick of it when the Thracian's revolt had kicked off, and probably traveled through territory in the throes of conflict on his way home. From his time in the capital, he understood that, that there was better to be had than scratching a living in the borderlands, and the rift between the Thracian Goths and the Empire was exactly the sort of gap that Theodoric and his Ostrogoths could widen if they could get their wedge in. Theodoric set out to convince his father and uncle of the feasibility of this plan. It would require a bold move. With Synigdunum as its base, Theodoric proposed loading up the whole Ostrogothic tribe and moving south into what was clearly Roman territory to demand a place at the table, similar to, if not equal, to that of the rebellious Thracians. Theudemir was apparently convinced. Vidimir, Theodoric's uncle, seems to have been less so. There is an odd passage in Jordanes that summarizes the decision-making process here, and can also provide a lesson in reading between the lines. Quote, As the spoils taken from one and another of the neighboring tribes diminished, the Goths began to lack food and clothing, and peace became distasteful to men for whom war had long furnished the necessities of life. So all the Goths approached their king Theudemir, and with great outcry begged him to lead forth his army in whatever direction he might wish. 
he summoned his brother, Vidimir, and after casting lots, bade him go into the land of Italy, saying that he, as the mightier, would go against the mightier empire. End quote. Okay, let's unpack that a bit. The parts about the spoil diminishing is probably mostly true, Theodoric's success at Singdunum notwithstanding. Theodoric would also have become aware of the vastly greater subsidy that was being provided to Thracian Goths than what the Ostrogoths were getting, and obviously shared that information. So, both the positive and negative incentives for moving were there. Like every other people of the period, the Ostrogoths, though, faced enormous logistical challenges, and it couldn't be a decision taken lightly. The idea of ten or 12,000 people all deciding to take the same action simultaneously and then pushing that decision on their leader rings a little hollow, as does the suggestion that that leader would then choose their course by a random casting of lots, not to mention divide their forces before the undertaking. What seems more likely to me, and to author Peter Heather, which is where I'm getting most of this, is that Jordanes is passing on a sanitized version of a much messier process, that Theodoric and the other like-minded elite Ostrogoths pushed Theodomir and Vidimir to make the bold move into Roman territory, and that the result was factionalization, with some arguing for a westward strategy. Theodoric's faction favored the east. It's possible as well that this casting of lots thing is a cover for political maneuvers designed to get Vidimir, remember, a potential rival for the leadership of the tribe, out of the way before he might have an opportunity to challenge Theodoric. So, Vidimir and his followers set off for the west, while Theodomir and Theodoric gathered the ten or thousand or so remaining Goths and struck out south and then east, into the Roman Balkans, and an uncertain future. The fate of Vidimir's contingent is also uncertain. I mentioned them in passing in episode 22 last season, in the end of the beginning. He threatened to invade Italy, and was bought off by the Emperor Glycarius, and redirected into the kingdom of the Visigoths. There, they were either destroyed in battle or incorporated into the kingdom of the Visigoths. More likely, a combination of both. Either way, Vidimir's Ostrogoths disappear from history as a distinct group, shortly after they departed from Pannonia. The main body of the Ostrogoths moved on south towards Nisus, which they took. The romantic 19th century notion that these migratory groups represent singular, homogenous proto-nations, composed of free individuals destined to settle in one spot and blossom into the nation-state of today, has been pretty well torpedoed by modern scholarship, and I have banged on about it quite a bit as well. For one thing, there were certainly at least as many unfree persons in the mix as there were free. If not actual slaves, then certainly lower-class people attached to those of higher rank by obligation or just physical need. For another thing, as we shall see, people often moved between groups when they were free to do so, changing their allegiance from one to another as the perceived advantage of doing so changed. The going idea among historians now seems to be that ethnic, with great big air quotes around it, identification and loyalty was strongest at the upper end of the social scale, falling off dramatically as you traveled down it. Slaves, obviously, would have had little to no problem switching their loyalties if a better deal presented itself with minimal risk. Conversely, social elites would be the least likely to accept outsiders into their particular subgroup, without some strong inducement. How did we get there? Let's get back to the Ostrogoths moving south. We've been here before, and so had the Empire. Everyone knew the deal, on both sides of the equation. The minute the Goths set foot in Roman territory, the end deal would have to involve some chunk of land within the Empire that the Ostrogoths could work in order to feed themselves. 
With such a large group on the move, the Ostrogoths were limited to the main roads, and indeed Jordanes explicitly states that they divided into two columns for the trek through the Balkan mountains, before rejoining on the approach to Thessalonica. The plan was a simple one. Having demonstrated their power by taking Nisus, they would threaten Thessalonica, the capital of the Illyricum prefecture, and see what the empire could come up with by way of an offer. This may sound all eerily familiar to the strategy employed by Alaric way back when, and that's because the strategic realities of the East hadn't really changed on a fundamental level since then. Now, if we believe Jordanes, an arrangement was made, and the next 16 years passed happily enough until Theodoric came to the Roman officials with the idea to go and recover Italy for them. His men were becoming bored with all the peace and prosperity, you see. Mm-hmm. As if. The presence of the Ostrogoths upset the already unstable political situation in the Balkans. Let's review the factions at play, just as a reminder of how things stand. We have the Emperor himself, Leo I. We have the Thracian Goths, led by Theodoric Strabo, still in rebellion, but used to being close to power and well taken care of. We have the newly arrived Ostrogoths, of course, led by Theodomir and son Theodoric. Added to that, we have at least two, and probably more, Isaurian factions. One led by Zeno, who has the whip hand at the moment, but has plenty of rivals, like the general Illus, who is a leader of Isaurian men in his own right. Zeno has in his possession the trump card of an imperial wife and son, who was pointedly also named Leo, clearly in line for the throne. In Constantinople, the general perception was that there was only enough land and or gold to accommodate one bunch of Goths, not two. It's possible that really there was only enough political will to accommodate one bunch of Goths, but that's six of one and half dozen of the other, really. And really, even if somehow it had been possible to find an arrangement for both Goths within the Empire, their interests were so at odds they probably would have fought anyway. That is what Jordanes was either too embarrassed or too uninformed to report. Sixteen years of Goth-on-Goth action in the Balkans. Fortunately, Roman sources, chief among them Malchus of Philadelphia, happily relate the back and forth. The official task with negotiations was the prefect of Illyricum, responsible for all of the Balkans west of the Suxi Pass, a man named Hilarionis. He stalled long enough for Leo to gather forces to march west and put counterpressure on the Ostrogoths, who accepted a deal where they would be billeted in several towns in Euboea and Macedonia. But these troops, being taken away from Thrace by Leo, gave Strabo a free hand. He moved with impunity between the cities of the Thracian plain, burning Philippi's suburbs and laying siege to Arcadiopolis. It didn't take long for Leo to call it quits and make a deal toward the end of the year 473. The Thracian Goths were returned to their most favored federate status, with the 2,000-pound subsidy reinstated and Strabo named Magister Militum Presentalis, master of the soldiers in the imperial presence. There was also the interesting stipulation reported by Malchus that Strabo was to be recognized as the, quote, sole ruler of the Goths, and that the emperor should not give admission to anyone who wished to enter his territory, end quote. Strabo recognized the game Theodomir and Theodoric were playing, and he put his foot down hard on his own patch. The position of pet Goth has already been filled, thank you, don't let the door hit you on the way out. The Ostrogothic gamble appeared to have failed. The massive subsidy agreed for the Thracians precluded any similar gift to the Ostrogoths. 
and a lifetime spent as guests of grumpy Macedonians wasn't what the men and women who had made the long trip south had had in mind. More trouble was inevitable. A series of deaths the next year accelerated things. First, in January of 474, Leo died, age 73, to be succeeded by his grandson, the seven-year-old Leo II. It evidently did not come as a surprise, since the younger Leo was crowned the very day his grandfather died. On February 9th, Leo crowned his father, Zeno the Isaurian, as co-emperor. It was a pretty impressive rise for a bandit warlord from the Styx. He couldn't have expected an easy time of it, but his position was dealt a potentially fatal blow when Leo II died in November of 474. There's no suspicion of foul play here. Leo was the victim of the horrifying child mortality rates of the ancient world, which took no notice of social class. Absent the legitimacy granted to him by his son, who after all was the child of an imperial princess, Zeno found himself on the head of a pin. With the traditional power centers of Constantinople, the Senate, Church, and bureaucracy, not terribly well disposed toward the imposition of this barbarian. Soil was added to the garden, and the plot thickened. The beneficiary of that plot was a man we've met before, Basiliscus, who had so badly bungled the naval campaign against the Vandals he'd had to hide from the mob when he'd returned to Constantinople. He had worked his way back into the city's good graces, and as brother of Leo's widow, was much better placed than Zeno to make a play for the purple. Strabo, naturally opposed to Zeno because, you know, everything, threw his weight behind Basiliscus, as did the other Asarian general, Illus, and so Zeno was forced to flee to the mountains of his homeland. Basiliscus was then crowned emperor in January of 475. Are you beginning to see why Odoacer was able to act freely over in Italy? Zeno holed up in his fortress in the Taurus Mountains, besieged by Illus. We don't know exactly where it was, but all of the fortifications of the region are classic impregnable ramparts on an unclimbable crag kind of things, and it is clear that Illus would have had his work cut out for him. Basiliscus had the throne and the diadem, but couldn't rest easy with Zeno still at large, and his concerns rose as news arrived from Macedonia. Theudemir had died in his mid-forties, and with no other candidates on hand, leadership of the Ostrogoths passed smoothly to Theodoric still in his early 20s. Theodoric managed to contact Zeno, promising him support in return for considerations if he was returned to the throne. Zeno, of course, agreed, and the Goths packed up again and headed east, onto the Thracian plain and into the storm. The effect was to keep Strabo distracted and unable to come to Basiliscus's aid as events took another turn. Illus had been hanging around outside Zeno's fortress for nearly a year and getting a little antsy, when he had the good luck to capture his quarry's brother, named Longinus. You would think that this would be bad news for Zeno, but here's the thing. Having Longinus as a hostage meant that Zeno would likely stick to any deal he made with Illus, and he would probably be willing to make a better deal than Basiliscus would. The switch was flipped and Zeno and Illus combined their forces and marched on Constantinople against the suddenly exposed Basiliscus. Did Basiliscus panic? Yes, he did. But he wasn't out of options just yet. He sent out the last forces he had available to meet the two Asarians, led by his nephew, named Armatus. Thing is, Basiliscus had sons to succeed him. Zeno did not. And so Zeno offered Armatus a pile of honors and a promise to make Armatus's son his, Zeno's, successor. 
Armadas was hooked, line and sinker, and he too turned on Basiliscus. It wasn't the most edifying display of familial loyalty, but it put Zeno back in the driver's seat. Basiliscus and his family were lured out of hiding with the promise that they would not be executed, and Zeno was as good as his word. They were instead exiled to Cappadocia and walled up in a cistern to starve to death. But they weren't technically executed, so there's that. Zeno returned to the throne in August, and thus had been on the throne less than a month when he received the embassy from Odoacer announcing the end of the Western Imperium. There was much to put in order, and Zeno was beholden to far too many benefactors for him to be comfortable. Zeno, you see, had a tidy mind, and this many kingmakers lying around is just too much clutter. One of them could be handled with minimal fuss. Armatus wasn't very well liked in the city, and so no one raised much objection when Zeno had him murdered. The man who did the deed, as it happens, was Hunolf, Odoacer's older brother, who had found a career in the corridors of the great city. The son, who was supposed to be made Zeno's successor, was ordained as a priest and so removed from consideration. Zeno would maintain his preference for this kind of underhanded but decisive action for the rest of his reign. That probably made Theodoric nervous, and the facts were that Strabo remained in control of about 13,000 fighting men, and that they still had to be reckoned with. Theodoric's force was about the same, and a clash seemed to be in the offing. Theodoric appealed to Zeno for the support he had been promised, but the emperor dithered, which didn't help Theodoric's nerves. As it happened, 476 and 77 were mainly given over to maneuver, with just a few skirmishes between Ostrogoth and Thracian, and nothing decisive. Then in 478, Zeno moved in favor of the younger of the Goths, and Theodoric was instructed to bring his army closer in towards Adrianople, there to meet other units that were to be attached to his, along with various town garrisons. Theodoric's total command would thus be swollen to some 50,000 troops, more than enough to put down Strabo and the Thracians for good. That was the plan that was presented to Theodoric, anyway. The Ostrogoths marched east, and were met by guides to help them find the rendezvous spot where they were to meet the reinforcements. The path was an odd one, off the main road through the Hamus Mountains by way of a narrow path between steep slopes on either side, and there was no sign of the reinforcements or the pay that had been promised. What they did find was Strabo and his men waiting for them. According to Malchus, Theodoric Strabo sent a long and slightly condescending letter to Theodoric, explaining that the emperor had betrayed them both, but I very much doubt it took Theodoric long to reach that conclusion all on his own. Malchus goes on to suggest that Theodoric still considered fighting his rival, even in these much less favorable circumstances, but was overruled by his men, who threatened to desert rather than fight such an obviously unwinnable battle. In Malchus's version of Strabo's letter, he spells out Zeno's intentions. Quote, While remaining at peace, the Romans wish the Goths to wear each other down, Whichever of us falls, they will be the winners, with none of the effort, and whichever of us destroys the other side will enjoy a Cadmian victory, since he will be left in diminished numbers to face Roman treachery. End quote. Whether Strabo would have actually made that reference to the ancient Greek myth of Cadmus and the Hydra, I kind of doubt, but no doubt Malchus was proud of his own erudition. The result was a Gothic armistice. The two Theodorics agreed that each would make whatever deal they could with Zeno, but they would not fight each other. Zeno wasn't an idiot, and he knew the Goths weren't either, so he likely understood that this was a possibility. He had gathered the armies that he'd promised Theodoric, and he probably promised them to Strabo too. 
and had intended to use them to mop up whatever remained of the intergothic battle. But they were still sufficient to take on either of the two Theodorics if he could get them separated. But Zeno had overreached himself back home, and chickens were coming home to roost that would prevent him from putting the gothic problem to bed. It seems that Zeno had been trying to tie up every loose end all at once in 477 and 478. Illus, the Asarian general and the other key player that had put Zeno back on the throne, survives an assassination attempt in 477. He used it to his advantage, blackmailing extra honors out of the emperor, but Zeno tried again in 478. Again the assassin failed, and this time was captured, and taken out of the city with Illus to get some answers, with utensils. All that meant that Zeno couldn't rely on the field armies to fight the Goths, and so he could not bring the matter of the two Theodorics to a satisfactory close. Once the Solidus had dropped, which again probably took zero time, and the chaotic situation in the capital became known, the younger Theodoric set off south toward the city, in high dudgeon, determined to make Zeno pay for his duplicity. Literally. This wasn't just about Theodoric's offended honor, though it surely was that too. So far, the decision to leave Pannonia hadn't paid off nearly as well as the Ostrogoths had been led to believe, and there was a very real danger. If Theodoric did not find a way to deliver soon, his men would abandon him, either going over to join Strabo, as some already had, or finding some other third option that seemed to have a better chance of producing the wealth and stability that they were looking for. Zeno decided that since Strabo was slightly less hacked off with him, that he would do a deal with Strabo, and offer the Thracian whatever he wanted to make things right. Strabo duly grasped the olive branch with both hands, and demanded and received senior generalship and a vast array of gold and goodies that flowed north from the city to the Thracian Goths, right past Theodoric and his Ostrogoths. Knowing that the Theodosian walls made direct action against the city unwise at best, but still needing to vent his feelings of disgust, betrayal, and rage, which were understandable, Theodoric decided that he would take it out on the poor citizens of the southern Balkans. He turned his force around, worked his way slowly westward along the Via Ignatia, sacking major towns all along the way. The marks of his rage are still visible in the archaeology of Philippi and Stobi. Once he was a little calmer, he picked up the pace and made a dash across the mountains to the coastal town of Epidamnus, which is modern Duresh in Albania. He somehow tricked or bribed his way into the city and took possession in the summer of 479. And there, according to Malchus, he settled down to wait. And there is where I will leave him for this episode. It's not quite as far as I had hoped to get, but this is getting a bit on the long side. Thank you all so much for listening. Apologies again for the long wait. I will continue to strive to do better. Special thanks are in order to Geldus, Alan, and Charlie again for their generous support on Kofi.com. It is humbling, and I cannot express my gratitude enough. Thanks also to Maud the Third and M. Not going to try to pronounce your last name because I'll only screw it up, but you know who you are. Who left reviews on Apple Podcasts? Maud made good use of her shift key, and M. I hope this episode wasn't too long for your run. Thanks to everyone who has left a rating wherever you listen, and to everyone who has subscribed to the show on whatever platform. The number of subscribers that I can see has doubled in the last six months, which is very gratifying. I will try to get some maps for this episode up on the website at www.darkagespod.com. They'll be linked in the show notes as well. 
Um, it may be a day or two before I have the transcript up on the website for this one. I am still a little behind with that kind of thing. That is all for now, and next time we will carry on with the story of Theodoric the Amal and his ongoing duel with Zeno the Isaurian. Until then, take care.